We are in a new series this morning, and when it comes to preaching, there are several different ways to do it. Uh, if you've grown up in church, you've probably experienced most of these, if not all of these, right? So the two major ones are topical. We're just coming out of a topical series uh, where what we call that reconsider. And in a topical series, what you do is you're taking individual topics, or in our case, we were taking questions, questions from those who were leaving the faith, and you seek to see how the Bible speaks to those, Right? We did that. We did that for six weeks. You can catch that on the podcast if you missed it. Um, then, kind of the other major one, you've got the topical. There's another category in there that's, that's probably more of a nuance than anything else. And then there's expository preaching, right? And the difference between the two is that expository preaching is taking an entire book of the Bible and walking through that book in a way that is seeking to be governed not necessarily by our questions so much as the intention of the author. What is the author trying to communicate? What is this entire book trying to communicate to us in regards to uh, the Lord and specifically the gospel? So that's what we're doing now. And so over the next six weeks, uh, as we get up to Advent, and then Advent will take over from there. Can you believe it's like six weeks until we're like... Gosh, I get anxious. I'm thinking about like Christmas trees and, and Christmas shopping. It's mainly the shopping I get anxious about, if I'm being honest. But we're six weeks from that. Over the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at this little book featuring this prophet named Jonah. And this book is actually way different than we expect. Which is why we're calling this series Unexpected. Jonah, the prophet himself, acts way different than we'd expect. The unbelieving... Uh, Other characters in the book, and there are many of them, most of the characters, in fact, are people who don't believe in the Lord. They act differently than what we'd expect. And fundamentally, God acts way different than the way we would normally expect. And so we're doing this so that we will be able to re-examine our expectations, let the Spirit align them based on His heart instead of our assumptions. So if you're in Jonah, or have the text in your order of worship or your device, if you stand in honor of God's Word, we do that before the sermon be reading the first six verses of this little book. This is God's word to us. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come to hear from your word, but we come to a book that uh, many of us find problematic Um, it contains some fantastical things that are just hard for us. And so if we're going to receive what you have for us today, we need you to work in our hearts to to open us to hear from you, to to, um, open our eyes to see Jesus in the midst of it. We need to clear our minds from the distractions, whether it's uh, stuff going on in our lives or just the thought of where we're going to go for lunch or 
what we're going to eat for lunch or what games are on this afternoon. Whatever's filling our minds, we just need you to come and to clear that for us. And we need, ultimately, Holy Spirit, you to come and transform us, no matter where we're at, whether we are... um, whether we have long followed Jesus or are still investigating, we need you, Spirit, to come and to transform us. Make us new. Use your word. Let Jesus and everything he has done come to the fore. The one who speaks fall to the wayside, because Jesus, you alone hold the words of eternal life. So speak. Your servants are listening. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So even if you have never read the Bible, my guess is that you know a little something about the book of Jonah, right? If you grew up in church, there was a whale piece of, a whale-shaped piece of felt that went on the felt board that was just for this book, right? Because nowhere else in scripture do you see a whale. So it was just for this book. Um, and those of you who are chuckling, there were lots of chuckles in the, in the, uh, at East, in Fishersville. You always know who grew up in church with felt boards. You start saying stuff like that and they start laughing. You're like, ah, that wasn't me, but it was you. So that's great. Um, it, so this book is known, and the, and the guy that it's written about, the, the, the guy whose name is on the front of it, um, it's, it's known for the fact that he gets swallowed and lives, right? Swallowed by fish and live, which is one of the reasons some of us have a really hard time with this book, because we're like, that can't possibly happen. I mean, we'll get to that a little later uh, in, in the book, but, um, but there's way more to this book than just fantastic events that we struggle to own, So as we hop into this book, let me give it some context. Jonah is located in a collection of books. And the Old Testament is kind of made up of collections. You get the first five books. We call those the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. Then you have have, uh, one set of histories. Then you have another set of histories. Then you have the wisdom literature. And then you have the major prophets and the minor prophets. Which isn't to say that there were some who were like big deals and some who weren't. It's just to say that some wrote a lot and some didn't write as much. Okay, So the ones that wrote a lot, we call them major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Okay, um, The minor prophets are a group of 12 um, who were more regionally located, didn't write as much. But here's the thing. Jonah is nothing like the rest of the minor prophets. He's in there. He's just nothing like the rest of them. Right, prophetic books are are collections of, for lack of a better word, sermons, things that were said to people and got written down by either the prophet himself or somebody who was close to him. And and so normally, when you read a prophetic book, you expect to hear a lot of messages. In Jonah, you don't get any; you get one. It's a short one. It's like five words, and so it, it, there's not a whole lot to it. So you think, okay, maybe it's not so much prophetic as it is maybe like a historical narrative like so many other parts of the Old Testament. But it doesn't fit that category either because in the historical narratives like First uh, and Second Kings, books of Chronicles, Samuel, things like that, they take, the, the writers take pains to place what they're talking about in the history, not just of Israel, but of the world. Right? So when they talk about the king of Egypt, they name him. When they talk about the emperor or the king of Babylon, they name him and they say this happened during this year of da 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 Jonah doesn't really do that either. I mean, the only thing that places Jonah in history is the name Jonah. So scholars are a little uh, divided on how to classify this book, but the message isn't really affected by that. Uh, 
it has a powerful message, and it challenges us, especially if you're a Christian here this morning, uh, by, in how we interact with the culture around us. And we're going to see that over the next six weeks. So we're going to look at this, this passage, in particular this unexpected escape, in three ways. And then, as always, there's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful. Okay? We're going to look, first and foremost, at a, at a reluctant believer. Then we're going to look at eager unbelievers. And then the challenge of escape. Okay? So let's dive in with the reluctant believer. Look at the first two verses. It says, first and foremost, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Okay? Now, that is the way you normally see these uh, prophetic books begin. Probably why we lumped him into the minor prophets. Um, And this is the only phrase that situates the story in history for us. Because Jonah is mentioned in only one other place. Jonah, son of Amittai, is mentioned in one other place in the Bible. And that's 2 Kings 14. I know y'all knew that already because you just love doing your devotional time in 2 Kings. Maybe you do. I don't know. Maybe that was like, maybe you do. Okay. But here's here's what we know about Jonah. Jonah was a northern prophet, which means, doesn't mean he was a Yankee. It uh, it means something different. Here's the way this works. In... um, Maybe you've heard of David, right? King David uh, was, he, he was this guy, little shepherd guy. Um, I don't really know entirely how little he was. Most of our little images of David come from children's Bibles. Not sure how reliable that is. But he was, he was a young man who at a young age was uh, anointed to be king over Israel. Remember him? He had an MMA fight with this big dude named Goliath. Killed him with one shot. Got famous. Um, and in about 1000 B.C., a long time ago, he united Israel into a, into a kingdom. United the 12 tribes into a kingdom. Now, there had been a king before him. Sad story. You can go look that up later. But David united the, the kingdom into uh, the kingdom of Israel. He had a son named Solomon. Solomon expanded the kingdom. He was known primarily as being a wise guy, and not in the mobster way. Like, he was wise. Like, that was who he was. He expanded the kingdom, but towards the end of his life turned away from the Lord. And as he turned away from the Lord, God gave him one of those promises you don't want to get. You know, like we always like claim God's promises. Don't claim this one. It was, I'm going to rend the kingdom from your heirs. You'll keep a little bit of it, but not them. Which more than likely he probably went and he he probably received his like, hold on, my heirs? Okay, good. I'm fine. All right. You know, that's the way most kings, when they get bad news, that's the way they react. I'm okay. So the kingdom was split north and south. Ten tribes were in the north, uh, in what was called Israel. Their capital was Samaria. And, and uh, the, the northern kingdom never followed the Lord. As a matter of fact, the very first day, or at least we would have, the very first thing that was done by the guy who, who became their first king, because he didn't want people going from the north down to Jerusalem, which is the capital of the south, to worship, because it threatened his rule. So he did what any, uh, any normal uh, ancient Near Eastern king would do, he set up two places of worship in his own country, which you could, of course, identify by the, by the big golden uh, bull. I don't know what it was about cows, but for some reason, in the Old Testament in particular, if you wanted to, if you wanted to make an image of your God, you said, I know, cow. Right? The bikers have cows. Go look at them. I don't, they, they don't say God to me, but... Um, but apparently they did in the ancient world. So, uh, so they never followed the Lord. The southern kingdom of Judah had some good kings and bad kings, good times, bad times, uh, but it is what it is. So in 2 Kings 14, 
We're told of Jonah and how he's preaching in the northern kingdom. And he's preaching primarily, and this is important, so clue back in if history makes you zone out. He was preaching primarily a message of mercy to this rebellious people. Preaching mercy to God's rebellious people who never followed him, never worshipped him, hadn't for generations at this point. Okay? And for you, like, real history nuts who like to take notes, figure this is like, this story is happening in like the 8th century BC, just in case you're wondering. Book wasn't written until a lot later, but probably the 8th century, okay? But look at what else we see through verse 2. He's told to arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, this is the word of the Lord that came to Jonah. In other words, this is something that we think, okay, he should be into this. You know, he's basically saying, go tell Nineveh, I'm not happy with all their evil. But that's the surface, and, and the surface isn't all that's there. Okay, so let me, let me explain. Nineveh is one of the chief cities of the Assyrian Empire. And in the ancient world, during the 8th century, when Jonah's doing his thing, they were the big bad. They were the bad guys on the scene who were constantly swallowing up lesser kingdoms. And Israel was one of those kingdoms. The northern kingdom was one of the kingdoms. The Assyrians threatened them all the time. They hated their god, or cows. They they were despising them as people. They were a threat. And Nineveh was one of the chief cities of the empire. It wasn't the capital, not yet. It would be, but it wasn't yet. But it was a place where the the emperor would be uh, a good, he would spend a good deal of time there. So again, an Israelite prophet is being sent to call out against the big bad, the great Satan, the evil of the world, which is a way of saying, let them know that pain is on the way because of their evil. Now here's the thing about that word evil. In Hebrew, which is the language the Old Testament was written in, that word can mean a couple things. It can mean evil, which is the when we think of it, we think of evil, like bad stuff that you do, evil, right? But it can also mean your trouble. Uh, your misery, your plight. Like, how can, how can it mean both the evil you do and the plight that you're in? Well, actually, that makes tons of sense if you understand the way the Bible frames the world. Because the Bible frames the world in seeing that the, what we do in rebellion against God, which would be called the evil that we do, like, what? Yeah, the Bible calls everything we do in rebellion against God evil. So, What we do in rebellion against God is also against how we were made to flourish, which means it negatively impacts us. So the evil we do actually contributes to the plight that we're in. But since God is telling Jonah to preach against Nineveh, the evil that they've done is probably in the forefront, but that other meaning is not far behind. Okay. Now, so far so good. We have religious dude, professional religious dude even, Okay, uh, called to go and proclaim the truth to those wicked enemies of God's people. Sounds like something he should love. But things turn out unexpectedly. Look at verse 3. See this response. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Okay, now, in, um, in Hebrew, when you get a command from God that says, get up and go, what always comes next is, he got up and went. Right? It always goes that way because that's, they mirror those two things to show that the command of God actually makes something happen. So uh, we should expect 
Jonah rose up and went to Nineveh. The surprising thing here is that Jonah goes not to Nineveh, but to Tarshish, which try saying that like six times fast. It was hard enough, and I was like four times in this passage. So here's, here's why that's so surprising. Nineveh is to the, to the east of wherever he is. If he's in Jerusalem, it's there, but it, he's probably in the northern kingdom somewhere. It's to the east. It's in what, what is now modern-day Iraq. Tarshish, scholars aren't exactly sure the precise location, but they know that it's across the Mediterranean Sea. There are three possible locations. All of them, they just kind of get further and further away. So here's why that matters. Not only did he not go to Nineveh, he went the complete other direction. And if you live in a desert all your life, he got on a boat, sailed as far away. He went to the ends of the world to get away, to do the opposite of what God had called him to do. So Jonah flees in the opposite direction to the farthest place he could find from what God called him to do. So he's running. He's running. The prophet of God is running, but not just from God's call. Okay? He's running from God. Keep reading. He says, Jonah got up. He flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, there's something going on here. I wish I could, like, I, there's some of you here I know that would just find this so awesome. And the rest of you would be like, so I'm just going to highlight it real quick. But the author's trying to get something across to us, and he's doing it by not just the words that he's saying, but the way in which he's writing it, okay? Look at what he repeats. He repeats two phrases in particular, from the presence of the Lord and the words went down. So if you have a Bible, I want you to underline from the presence of the Lord and the, and the phrases went down. You'll notice that from the presence of the Lord creates a frame, right? And then further down in that, lower in the frame, there's another frame. The went down is a frame as well. And in the middle is getting on this ship to Tarshish. Here's why that matters. Jonah isn't just trying to escape God's call. He's trying to escape God. And not just God, but the Lord. If you see that word in all capital letters, as as it's in our Old Testament a ton, that is God's covenant name. Here's why that matters. Because when we broke the world, when we broke ourselves, we turned against from the Lord, right at the beginning of the Bible, betrayed him, uh, broke relationship with him, uh, came under the guilt of our sin, um, and also broke the world, so the world is now messed up and turned away from him. Um, Right there at the beginning, God made a promise to make things better. He said, I'm going to make this right, and I'm going to make you right. I'm going to reconcile the world, I'm going to reconcile you to me. We call that a covenant. In particular, we call it the covenant of grace. And every time you see the word Lord, that is God's name as he revealed himself to those who he had made promises to. So, when you see the word Lord all in caps, it's drawing our eyes back to that aspect of God. As he's the one who makes unconditional promises to those who have betrayed him. Promises to have mercy on them. Okay, with me? Great. So that's away from the presence of the Lord, but the going down is equally important. The next frame down. That phrase, going down, is, only, is, a, is language used in only one other time in the Bible. Not one place, but one other time, one other circumstance. Anytime the Bible talks about going down into death. 
Anytime in the, in the Hebrew Bible where you talk about the place of the dead, they call it Sheol. Anytime that you're, that you're going to Sheol, it's called it's going, those words together, going down into this. So Jonah is seeking to escape the Lord. And there is something about God that is messing with him to the point that he is willing to go down, to go down into death to get away. Now, let's keep reading that because there's more going on than just what's going on with Jonah. We also have what's going on with these sailors. Uh, look at what's said in, in Mirrored Action. It says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they, they hurled cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Okay? So, so obviously God isn't done with Jonah, right? Now, at first it sounds really petty, that God's just trying to get him, uh, he's trying to punish him, but think with me real quick, like, God controls every atom in our bodies, he, he doesn't need to f- use a storm to get us, I know it sounds like that impetuous God that we always imagine, that when we, we do something bad, he makes natural disasters happen to us, which we think that way, because every time a natural disaster happens, some two-bit preacher gets on TV and says, this happened because the Lord is angry about blah, 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 Okay. God doesn't have to do stuff like that. Uh, Actually, God doing this is a comfort, and we're going to get there in a second, but just stay with me. Here's what I need to point out to us, that our author is clearly painting for us. You see, the Lord hurls this storm. That word is particular, hurl. He hurls a storm on the sea, and the sailors respond by doing two things. First, they cry out to their gods. Now, they're false gods. They can't help them. But they see something is going on religiously in this. There's some spiritual component to what is happening to us. And so we are going to act by crying out the only way we know how. So first thing they do is they cry out to their gods. The second thing is that what seems like this really innocuous phrase. They begin to toss things overboard. But it doesn't say toss. It says hurl which is the same word that it uses for God throwing something on the sea. They begin throwing something on the sea too. Their actions begin to mirror God's actions. In contrast to that is what Jonah does, right? Look down there. It says, but Jonah had gone down, same phrase again, into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Now, The timing of when Jonah went down isn't specific, but the contrast of these two actions is very clear. The sailors, in response to the storm, cry out to their gods and start mirroring the action of God by throwing stuff. Jonah goes down even further into what is called the inner part of the ship. Again, that phrase inner part is the same phrase, again, used for going down into the inner parts of death. He's going down even further away from God. The sailors see the storm. They cry out to their gods. Jonah sees it and goes down further away from God. The sailors hurl things just like God to help their plight. Jonah ignores it. Goes into a deep sleep. See where this is going? Maybe not. Here's the kicker. Look down at a mirrored heart. Look down at verse 6. He says, So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? It's a really awkward phrase, but it's hard to translate. Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. All right, this is beautiful. I want you to see this. The captain is now mirroring both the call of God and the heart of God at the same time. 
So he comes down in the hold, probably to find more things to toss overboard, right? Because they're trying to figure out what else can we throw overboard because the ship is about to break up. And he finds Jonah. He doesn't think about throwing Jonah overboard. Jonah has to give him that idea, and that comes later, so we'll get to that. But he's rightly upset, and he's like, dude, what are you doing? So he calls Jonah to arise. It's the same thing God called him to do at the beginning, right? Arise. Which, you can imagine Jonah in like a dead sleep. He suddenly hears someone saying, arise. And he's like, I cannot get away from this guy. Like, what do I have to do to get away from God? But these words from the captain begin to give us a window into why Jonah ran. Something that won't become clearer until a little later fully. He's saying, cry out so that we won't perish. You see, that's why God sent Jonah to Nineveh. He is to cry out to Nineveh, not just to declare their destruction, but in hopes that they'll turn so that they won't perish. Jonah isn't running from God because he's scared that he's going to get into the, the big city of the big bad and he's going to say, hey, my God says he's about to destroy you. I mean, you do know what happens when you walk into a crowd of people who don't believe in the God that you worship and you say, God's going to get you. They go, eh. like whatever. Like they ignore you. They don't do anything to you. Jonah isn't afraid of, of the Assyrians. He's running because he's scared of God not getting the Assyrians. He's afraid of God's mercy to them. Now, some of you are thinking, Rick, that seems to be a bit of a stretch, right? Well, I actually don't think so, uh, because we have to place this little passage in the context of the entire book, and we have to take that book. We've got to place it in the context of God's actions in the world. You see, the idea of God coming to have mercy on his enemies is the central message of the Bible. That's not a new thing. That's the thing. That's why Jesus came, right? Where Jonah fails because he's messed up like you and I. Like, you and me, we're messed up, and if, if God called us to go proclaim, uh, proclaim something to God's, like the biggest enemy you can think of. Just imagine the biggest enemy you can think of. Go proclaim it to them. We would struggle with that for the same reason that Jonah does. What if they listen? But see, where Jonah failed, Jesus didn't. Because not only did Jesus come to cry out against our brokenness and our need for mercy, which he did, right? That's what Laura was reading when he cried out, you hypocrites. You hypocrites. Right was Isaiah when he prophesied against you. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Like, Jesus came and cried out against our brokenness and our need for mercy, but he also secured that need. So, whereas Jonah went down closer and closer to death to get away from God, get away from God's call, Jesus went down into death to fulfill God's call by bearing the weight of our betrayal. Jesus came not just to proclaim God's mercy, Jesus came to embody it. He came so that we might not perish. That is the heart of God. That is the heart reflected by a captain who doesn't even know the name of this God and yet reflects his heart when when God's prophet doesn't. Now, I want to speak in a more applied manner if I can uh, for the next few minutes. First, by speaking of fleeing his presence. Because you see, what's so unexpected about this passage 
uh, is the fact that God's prophet runs from God's call and ultimately from God's presence. That doesn't seem like something that we think should happen. God's religious professionals running from God, that seems weird. But at the same time, it isn't very unexpected if you get how we generally function as people when we come into contact with God. Here's what I mean. By nature, by nature, we don't, and by we I mean all of us, in here, out there, we don't seek God. By nature, we do run from him. We want our independence, but we run from him dramatically, like Jonah's doing, when there's something about God that begins to press against us and press us fully so that we have to do something dramatic. So Jonah is uh, more like those of us in this room who are wired a little more religiously. And by that, understand that I don't just mean, I mean Christian, non-Christian. If you're wired in a more religious way, a little more moralistic way maybe, um, this, is, this is kind of like Jonah. Religious people tend to flee God's presence when that presence pushes against their pride and it asks them to share God's heart. I mean, if, if you lean that way in the room, like, you're, you're great with God asking you to do stuff. You'll keep your checklist and do your rules all day long, but when God asks you to share his heart, ugh, yeah, I, don't, I don't know, right? See, Jonah could proclaim God's mercy to Israel. He did that. 2 Kings 14. Proclaimed God's mercy to Israel because they were Israel. He could believe God's mercy for him because he's Jonah. But when it comes to those who outwardly hate God, the enemies of God, the wicked, those who don't even know his name and do vile things, no, I don't know, man. I don't know that they deserve it. See how that works? See how that works to even undercut the very definition of the word mercy? Because mercy by definition is never deserved. See, we become fooled into thinking that God shows us mercy because we deserve it. But when we have to embrace his heart for the broken, to care about their plight, it forces us to admit that God cares about their plight because he cared about ours. That we're just as broken as they are. And when we can't handle that, we run from him. And, and if you're here in this room, like, I know you're not, like, you're not going to Tarshish. We don't even know where that is, so you're definitely not going there. We run from it normally through um, obedience, moralism. So it's like, yeah, sure, I, I don't pray for my non-Christian friends and neighbors. Um, or no, I certainly don't ever share the gospel with them, but I have killer quiet times. I, I know my Bible. I have memorized the entire book of Romans. Good for you. Like, I, 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 have, I have done all that God has asked me to, listen, to be in relationship with God is to become like him, even in his heart for undeserving people like me and like you. Stop running. But less religious-leaning people, more irreligious-leaning, right? And some of us are in that category, too. We don't, we don't lean religious. We lean a little more irreligious we tend to flee from God when his presence pushes against our freedom. And it asks us not to share his heart so much as his holiness. 
In other words, we don't like it when God says that our actions are actually leading us towards death and not life. And that being in relationship with him is seeking to become more and more like him in that holiness. And so maybe that's you this morning, and you don't want him to speak into things. You don't want him to speak into how you use your sexuality, because you know what? That's between me and and whoever I want to share it with. You don't want him to speak into uh, your workaholism, or in the amount of alcohol you drink consistently. And so you're like, you know what? God should just accept me as I am. Listen, listen, listen really close. God loves us right where we are, but he does not leave us right where we are. That wouldn't be loving. He loves us where we are, but he will not leave us where we are because that's not loving. So how do you do it? How do you flee God's presence? Do you flee it through, through your moralism? Like, I'm just going to do better in this category over here and not, not share his heart because I know that maybe I can appease him with my obedience. Or do you, do you just do it through temper tantrums? Like, I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Are you trying to escape sharing his heart? Are you trying to escape sharing his holiness? Maybe both. Maybe both. Listen, God is calling you today to simply confess that to him. Especially if you're in that religious-leaning category. Listen, because I said you got to share his heart, and the first thing you started to do was, you're right, okay, first I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and and you start creating another checklist. No. Listen, what God calls us to do is simply confess that we are not where we should be. And we're not. Not a single one of us. And then ask him to change us. If you're like, ugh. Rick, I don't even know if I want to change it. Okay, that's fine. Confess that to him and ask that he would make you want to want to change. But don't run to independence. Run to Jesus. Right? The last thing I want, uh, I want to point out, though, is that this passage encourages us with the reality of pursuit. Did you notice that? Remember what I said earlier? Like, why did God send this storm? Because it wasn't to punish Jonah. I don't know if you noticed, nothing really, at this point, nothing has happened to Jonah. He's been snoozing. If God sent the storm to punish Jonah, he missed it. He whiffed on that one. Because Jonah's just been chilling in the, in the, like, he's just out. I mean, that deep sleep it talks about is the same kind of sleep that Adam, it says in Genesis uh, 3, that, or 2, that, that Adam went under when God pulled a rib out of his side. That's serious anesthesia. Like, he's out. He's out. Jonah is not being punished. Jonah is being pursued. God is chasing Jonah not to rail on him, but to rescue him. Because Jonah's heart has turned from God, and he is passionately running from him, and is moving closer and closer to death. So God chases him. In the 19th century, um, in England, there was, there was a poet by the name of Francis Thompson. And he wrote a 182-line poem, which I guess is pretty long, right? Uh, named The Hound of Heaven. Which makes sense in, in England because in the 19th century, you would, you would do a lot of hunting, right? And the way you would hunt, and when I was growing up in, uh, in central Virginia, rural central Virginia, they did this too. It looked a lot different. Like in England, you'd get on a horse and your hounds would go out. In rural central Virginia, you sat by your truck with a shotgun and your dogs were out in the woods. And you're like, eh, getting it. 
And you, you drive by, and the bus would drive by, and they're all just chilling. It's like early morning, and you can see their breath. They're just chilling by the roadside, with their, waiting for their dogs to come back. But a hound is there to pursue what you are trying to capture or kill. What you are trying to get, what you are hunting. So he wrote this poem called The Hound of Heaven that envisions God as that hound chasing us who are desperately trying to run away, desperately trying to get away from God. And the point of it is that God, God doesn't just leave us to let us go our own way. He pursues us. Jonah would have been fine and happy to go on his way and to leave God behind so he didn't have to change. And so are we, if we're being honest. But God pursued him. Listen to me, if you're here this morning and God just won't leave you alone, and you're here and you're sitting in this place and you've been feeling this way and you're hoping to get a little reprieve this morning, and all you're getting is a lot of like, ah, why won't he leave me alone? I get it. I totally get it. I've been there. He won't leave you alone because he loves you. And I know you don't think this, but it's probably because what you're doing is leading you to death. The life that you want is in the other direction. It's back towards him. Look, if my kids, and right now, I live on a massive hillside, right? And if my kids are storming down that hillside into a busy street where the traffic's coming, I will chase them with everything in my being, not to punish them for running, but to save them from what is coming. God has to chase us because we will always, left to ourselves, run from him. So if you are running this morning, will you just turn to him? He's not going to get you. The cross of Jesus is way better than anything you've done. He's chasing you because he loves you. So listen, at the end of the day, what is more unexpected? That a prophet would run? Or that God in his mercy and love would pursue that rebel to bring him home? Would you pray with me? Lord, the longer I do this, the longer I just, uh, I'm a Christian. <laughs> the more and more I, am, I find myself marveling at the amount of creativity that we use to run from you. Uh, oftentimes it seems in my own heart that I'll do anything if it, if it means just being able to stay the same. But you're good. You want us to share your heart and your holiness. And so... This morning, uh, as we're here in this room right now wrestling with whether we will share one, the other, maybe both, I pray that you would press the gospel into our hearts to see that you're not asking us to get it together, but to just cry out to you that the work of Jesus is enough for our failures and the Spirit of God is enough for any change that's to take place in us. And so, Lord, let us return again to you, depend on you, Seek your face. And then, Lord, would you, by your grace, let this congregation, let this church mirror not just your holiness, but that too, but also your heart, your heart for the world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.